Hello, thank you for joining me in my season two. Well, I'm very excited to have you here. You are really an inspiration and I really want to know about your journey and so is my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. So how are you? How are you coping up your life with COVID-19? Well, you know, we're, I think we're all doing the best we can. Um, certainly, you know, here in the US, different states have been under different levels of quarantine for the whole, we're up to 414 days here in New Jersey. Um, but I think with vaccinations happening at a, at a pretty rapid pace, um, like here in my own, my home state of New Jersey, we've had 7 million people receive at least one dose. Um, and I think it's 4 million people are fully vaccinated. And in the US, 100 million people are fully vaccinated at this point. So I think we'll start to see the numbers come down for sure. Um, although, you know, there are hot spots throughout the country here, like in Michigan, for example. Um, and and yes, obviously, the whole world is battling right now. Right. And I, certainly our experience is nothing like what is going on in India right now. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you know, my, my, my life didn't change terribly much because I'm a writer. I work from home anyway. So I was home, you know, and my three children, two of my three children were, um, one is, you know, grown and flown, lives, lives on her own um, in Chicago. And my middle son uh, is in college, even though university is, you know, more, uh, was online this year, he, he was away. Um, and my husband, my husband got, had to get used to working from home. So, um, but, you know, other than kind of having to wear masks when you go out to, you know, the store or wherever, it, life is, is starting to get a little more normalized for, for us anyway. Yes, it's like good for you to spend more time with your family right now. Well, I don't know if, I don't know if they'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so can you tell us a little more about your journey? How were you diagnosed and when did you find out? Sure, so um, I'm a two-time cancer survivor. Um, I <clears throat> So we'll start with the more recent diagnosis. Um, in 2016, um, I went for my annual mammogram um, and I waited to get the results back as I did every year. And I'd probably been getting mammograms since I was in my mid thirties um, because, you know, very kind of very early on my, my doctor said, you need to just start your mammos early. So, um, and the doc, you know, sitting there waiting for, you know, the nurse or the tech to come in with the reminder card for next year and in walks the radiologist. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> this can't be good. And she said to me, you have a junkie cyst. She's like, I don't like how it looks. You need to have a biopsy. So of course I asked, you know, is it breast cancer? And she's like, I can't tell you that. That's why you have to have a biopsy. So I went and I scheduled my biopsy and on a perfectly ordinary night in March, 2016, it was actually March 2nd was the day before my middle son's 15th birthday. Um, the phone rang 
And, you know, I heard the words I never wanted to hear again in my life, which were, you know, I'm sorry, you have breast cancer. And my doctor said, you know, it's going to take a few weeks for us to figure out a treatment plan. We have to do additional pathology, all this other stuff. So, um, but in that kind of moment of ordinary, right? My youngest son who was 10 at the time was doing his homework. Dinner was on the stove. I was setting the table. So we, you know, could sit down and, and eat. My whole, the timeline of my life just broke, right? And I knew that because as a teenager, I had had Hodgkin's disease, which is what Hodgkin's lymphoma was called back in the 1980s. And when I was diagnosed, my oncologist, my parents sat down with me and they said, okay, you have this blood disease and um, you're gonna have a tough couple of months ahead of you and then you're gonna be fine. And the strangest thing about that is, as I recall those conversations I had as a, as a teenager, was that nobody ever said I had cancer. The word just was not used, which was a function of the times partly, I think, but I also think it was probably my parents wanting to protect me from something like really scary. <laughs> so, um, but so I had a splenectomy and then I went for radiation therapy um, four days a week. And at the time um, we lived in a borough of New York City called Staten Island, which is a little island out in New York Harbor. And the only hospitals you could go to for radiation therapy were in New York City. And so my parents drove me four days a week from Staten Island to New York City for treatment. So it was basically, you know, a whole morning every, every day, four days a week. And on the other day, I went to, I went to school. On the, on the middle day of the week when I didn't have treatment, I went to my high school. Um, and the weirdest thing was, I couldn't understand why I had to go to this hospital where people were really, really sick, didn't have any hair or, you know, hooked up to IVs. And I just had this blood disease and I didn't feel sick at all. So it was like this cognitive sort of disconnect um, I had. And when it was over as a teenager, my family didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it. I just wanted to go back to being a normal teenager and life went on. And when I was 21, my oncologist saw me for the last time. He told me to get out of his office and go live my life. And he said, one more thing, start your mammograms early. And at 21, I didn't have the prescience or I wasn't smart enough to ask him why. I just filed it away and said, well, I'll deal with that, you know, in 10 years when I'm in my thirties. So, um, but, you know, I followed his advice religiously, you know, and I started my mammograms early and, you know, thank goodness I did because, you know, what that did was he saved my life, not just once, but twice because I followed his advice. That's how important that was to do. So flat, you know, flash forward 35 years from that time, that point in time to when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I ended up having to have um, chemotherapy. So I had six cycles of chemo. Um, I had a bilateral mastectomy 
and implant reconstruction and um, eight additional cycles of a targeted therapy. So for all in, it was a year of treatment for me. And today, you know, I'm healthy and um, life is life is good. So I'm very grateful. Yeah, I totally see you. You're happy right now in your life and also healthy. It's actually very important to have family support in such times. So what was it difficult for you to tell your kids about your diagnosis? How did mental health affect you and your family during the treatment? Um, well, to answer the first question, yes, it was very, very hard to tell my children. And, you know, the funny thing is, you know, when my husband and I first married, you know, one of the things we were really emphatic about being was, you know, open and honest. His family are big communicators. So you, you tell anybody in his family anything, somebody else will know about it in like two seconds. You know, my family was very different than that. They were, were not big communicators. So we really wanted to, you know, make sure we didn't, or I, I felt like I didn't want to make the same mistakes with my kids that I felt my parents made with me. And then I found out I had cancer. <laughs> and so we decided we would we'd tell our three children. Um, my oldest daughter was 19 at the time. She was a freshman in university. So first year in university. Um, my middle son was 15 and he was in his first year of high school. And my youngest son was 10 and still in primary school. So <clears throat> we said, well, when we get all the information, diagnosis, treatment plan, everything, we'll sit everybody down, we'll have a family, you know, collective moment and um, answer their questions, you know, kind of grieve together as a family and reassure them that I was gonna be okay. And while that sounded like a great idea <laughs> at the time, that's not exactly how it played out. <laughs> so, um, and I won't get into too many of the details, but um, the upshot was that, you know, my daughter ended up finding out from my husband who told her while well, my son and I were a hundred miles away at a swim meet and there was a lot of drama and a lot of hurt, a lot of hurt. My daughter felt really betrayed that I didn't tell her as I had found out the information instead of waiting. Um, and kind of ironically, the American Cancer Society, you know, has a whole web page on telling your children. And one of the things they say is that you should prepare to have multiple conversations with your kids, you know, over time and not, and not do what I tried to do, which was totally control the narrative and control everything. Um, as far as, you know, mental health goes, um, I think one of the most important things is that you know, and I, I said, say this, this is the opening of my book is that an individual doesn't get cancer, a family does. So the disease isn't just something that affects the person who has it, it affects the entire family. You know, it affects the kids, it affects, certainly it affected my spouse or it would affect your, your partner. Um, and caregivers a lot of times, you know, are kind of forgotten, you know, in the midst of like all the care that's being given to the person who's sick. You know, you don't think about, or maybe not as often as you should think about what the disease is doing to the people who love you, you know, who care for you. Um, 
and it certainly affected my, my middle son deeply. Um, he got very withdrawn. He um, slept a lot. He didn't want to be around me. You know, at one point he told me, you know, I, I had become a monster to him. And part of that was that he had lost his, we'd lost his grandfather a couple of years prior to um, prostate cancer. And my son was very, very close to him. And so I think he had a very hard time, you know, reconciling those two things. Like, is mom gonna die? Cause she looks just like granddad did when he was really sick. You know, I didn't have any hair, it was just, you know. Um, but what ended up happening, you know, was that my son really fell into a major depression you know, that wasn't diagnosed for about a year. And we, you know, thankfully got him into treatment and, you know, he's fine today. He's happy and healthy, but, you know, I missed that as his mother, you know, which was shocking and painful to like realize. And um, because as a parent, you know, you want to protect your children, right? That's your, you know, your first instinct, right? Is to protect them and make sure they're safe and, loved and cared for. And he, you know, he, he told me, he's like, I didn't want to tell you because I, I didn't think you could handle it. So he, my, you know, my teenager was trying to protect me. And, you know, that was really heartbreaking to hear. Um, so what I, I like to tell or suggest to families, um, if they find themselves in a situation where, you know, a loved one is ill, a parent or caregiver is ill, make sure you keep an eye on the kids. And if you can't do it, ask your friends, your neighbors, your teachers, their coaches, you know, other important adults in their life to keep an eye on them because you might miss something because you're so wrapped up in your own, you know, illness and everything else. So everyone had to support each other while your treatment it's totally understandable that is what family is all about so Absolutely. what treatments did you undergo how was life battling cancer twice well um so i as a, a breast cancer patient i had what's called triple positive breast cancer which means i was positive for hormone receptors estrogen and progesterone and another receptor called, I'm just gonna give the abbreviation, it's called HER2, H-E-R-2. Um, and with that, the way my oncologist explained it to me, he said, the estrogen and the progesterone, which are hormones your body makes, are basically like fuel to your cancer cells, right? And HER2 is another type of fuel. And what you, the chemotherapy, chemotherapeutic agents that are used to treat this particular kind of cancer do is cut those fuel lines, right? And it shrinks the tumors and the tumors go away. So I went through um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy on Taxotere, um, Carboplatin, uh, Herceptin and Progetta. So the, it's called TCHP here. That's the protocol here. Um, and like I said, I had, I had breast surgery. Um, I, had a, I chose to have a bilateral mastectomy, even though they could only detect cancer in one breast at the time. And I, I was so adamant that I, I couldn't bear the thought of like putting everybody through this again if it ever came back. Um, 
So I wanted to have a bilateral and it's a good thing I did because my surgical pathology showed post-surgery that there was DCIS, the ductal carcinoma in situ, which is sort of the pre-cancer cancer. You know, so it would have just been a matter of time really. So I'm glad I, I chose that route and I had reconstruction. And if you, you know, I stood up and you looked at me, you would never know, you know, so, and I had great plastic surgeon. So, you know, my, my surgery went, you know, really well. Um, but, you know, there are many components to recovering from cancer. And one of the important things um, that I came to learn was, you know, my mental health was really affected by um, going through this twice. And for probably the first year after I finished treatment, I was so anxious and so afraid of recurrence. I, you know, and every time I had to go to the doctors, you know, my family all, you know, cringed because I would get, I'd lose my temper. I was really short with everybody. And finally, my husband said, you got to stop. You've got to go see somebody because we can't live like this. You know, we can't walk on eggshells in the house feeling like, you know, any moment you're going to lose it because you're so anxious. So I, I did. And I, I went into therapy, excuse me. And um, I had to kind of go back and deal with all the Hodgkin's memories that I never really dealt with as a teenager, you know, some of which were very, you know, frightening and scary. And, but once I, you know, looked at them in the light of day and opened, you know, kind of opened up the box, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, um, you know, I was free of that. They were, they're just memories now. They're, they're nothing to be, nothing for me to be actively afraid of. So that was really important. Um, that a lot of times people will say, well, you know, treatment's over, aren't you glad your life got back to normal and everything is fine. And what most people don't know is that it's not fine. Like sometimes the hardest part of going through cancer treatment isn't going through the treatment, it's learning to live with, live with being a survivor afterwards. Um, and as a long-term Hodgkin's survivor, I'm dealing with, you know, the, the long-term side effects of, of the treatment that I received because back in 1980, the radiation treatments were, you know, far less sophisticated than they are today. Um, my heart was damaged from the radiation so I ended up having to have a valve replaced um, in 2019 because it had calcified because of the radiation. I have to have my thyroid watched um, because the, the field the field of for radiate for the radiation that I received was basically from here to like my diaphragm. So it was my whole chest area. So I have to watch my thyroid. I have to watch my lungs. You know, there's all this other long-term stuff. You just I just have to have monitored and thank God I have great doctors who do that for me. So I'm very, very lucky in that regard. You are a really strong lady. You fought with all of this with your family. So yeah. what inspired you to write again, Surviving Cancer Twice with Love and List? And when did you start writing? Was it difficult for you? Okay. Um, so when did I start writing? So Here's the joke about, again, 
<laughs> it, writing it was quite a journey. But the joke is, is that again, was never supposed to be a book. It was supposed to be a list. So when I was in treatment and I was almost done with chemo. So this would have been like in the summer of 2016, my nurse, um, my surgical nurse ran a cancer support group once a month that I would go to. And one day after one of those meetings, she said, hey, Chris, would you mind writing me a list of like some tips or tricks or helpful information that I could share with other patients from a patient's perspective? And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to write you a list. And then I got my car to go home and I was like, why did you agree to do that? That was a terrible thing to agree to do because I was in the middle of my own you know, experience. I was like, what am I going to tell somebody else? You know, so, um, so I ignored her request for months. I just, I ignored it. Um, and after I had recovered from surgery, um, my sense of obligation got the better of me. So I sat down, I was like, all right, I'm going to write Karen her list. And um, once I started writing, I couldn't stop. And it took me about three months, two, three months. And I ended up with 10 essays, short essays. It was about 35 pages of, of text. Um, and I called it What I Know Now. And I sent it to her and she emailed me back and she's like, this is awesome, but it's not a list. And, and that, those, that set of essays that I wrote very, very close in time to um, all the events that had happened sort of served as the backbone for, or the beginning of, of writing again. And um, so, you know, at the, the time I was writing that list for Karen, I, you know, I had also just turned 50 and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in this post-cancer life of mine. Was I going to go back to work as a lawyer? Was I going to go back to my own, running my own legal writing and editing business that I ran, or should I do something totally different and write a book? So I said, well, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna write this book and take the list and turn it into a book. But I knew that I knew nothing about writing a book. So I ended up taking probably about two years of creative writing classes. I joined a writing group. Um, I had a mentor. You know, I went to writing conferences. I had different people read different versions of the manuscript. Um, and so the whole process took about four years from beginning to end. Um, by the time I had a finished manuscript in 20, called late 2019, so it was right before COVID happened. You know, I had it, I had it professionally edited. I did a book proposal. I was, you know, out pitching uh, publishers and agents and such. And then COVID and now you are the best-selling author. <laughs> you inspired. <laughs> and then COVID happened. So I choose. I chose actually the worst year <laughs> to have a book published in. Um, but you know, ultimately, it's it's been um, a great journey and a great experience. And there were certainly parts of the book that were very hard to rate. You know, I, I cried a lot when I wrote the book. Um, and there's still parts of the book that if I read today, I'd probably still cry about, but, um, you know, and, and so it was, it was 
it was a journey for me and it was also a journey for my family because when I floated the idea of writing a book, you know, my teenage son was just like, stop, just stop. No one wants to hear about your breast cancer. Just stop talking about it. And when the book finally came out last October and um, he texted me from college and he's like, I saw the book came out. He goes, and that is really cool. So, you know, he kind of came or <laughs> came around. Um, and my youngest son, who's now a sophomore, second year in high school, um, you know, tells his teachers and his friends, he's like, my mom's, a, my mom's an author. So even though he was little or not little, but he was much younger when all this was happening, you know, I think he's even a little proud of it too. So that's, that's nice. Of course, your book is very inspiring and that's why you are the best publisher today. So can you tell us a little more about Again Surviving the Cancer Twice with Love and Lust? Sure. So um, one of, you know, beside the, the joke part, like my, it should have been a list and not a book. But when I was first diagnosed, I really wanted, like, I'm a book person. Like if I move the camera, you would see all my stacks of books here in my office. And I wanted a book that was gonna tell me how I was gonna deal with this disease as an ordinary woman, wife and mom, you know, I'm not, you know, and I went looking for that book and there were plenty of, mem you know, memoirs, books written by celebrities who had had cancer. You know, I'm not a celebrity, so that's, that, you know, <laughs> that wasn't gonna help me. Um, and, and I just don't care for that those types of books, that's just my preference. There were all sorts of, you know, medical books written by doctors and stuff. And I didn't want that because I have really great doctors. I didn't, I mean, I didn't need to become a second doctor. You know, I just wanted my doctors to take, to take care of me. So um, my oncologist in, in particular, he's fabulous. So um, I, also found, you know, plenty of like inspirational type books and, you know, lots of journals with pink ribbons on them, you know, the, the breast cancer symbol. I don't know if that's a symbol in, in India, but here in the US, it's the pink ribbon. <laughs> so, um, and then I found all these beautiful memoirs written by people who died from cancer. And I was like, you know, I go into a bookstore and they're like, here, do you want to read When Breath Becomes Air? <laughs> dead person thanks you know because that wasn't helpful to me then they're beautiful memoirs don't get me wrong and I've probably read every cancer illness memoir that's been written if I look at my bookshelves I mean I probably have every one of them at this point and I've read them all and they're gorgeous meditations on the meaning of life and confronting one's mortality but when you're confronting your mortality that's for me that's not what I wanted to read what I wanted was a, a trail map I wanted like a guidebook. I, I wanted somebody to say, here is a flashlight to help, help you get through this, you know, dark, I was visualized in my head, like walking through, you know, kind of a dark forest, you know, where the light isn't necessarily that clear all the time. And I couldn't find that book. So I decided to write that book so that if somebody else hears those words, I'm sorry, you have cancer that maybe my book will be able to help them, 
you know, navigate their way through and know that, you know, I more, more, I like to say more than the book is more than about cancer. Cancer is just the backdrop for, for the story because tons of people get cancer. I think here in the U S the numbers like 1.8 million people are diagnosed every year. Um, so it's a pretty, it's, it's rare to find somebody who doesn't know somebody who's either been personally affected by cancer or knows somebody else about cancer. So it's not really a book about cancer per se. It's really a book about resilience and it's a book about strength and courage. And, you know, the message I like to impart is that we all have, you know, the strength inside us to face things, even when they're hard and scary. Um, and that, you know, is also certainly the case, I think, you know, for the whole world living through this pandemic. And so to me, the real, the message of the book is, is one of resilience. And, and, you know, my big sort of life lesson that I learned was, I don't really have, you know, for all the lists I've made in my life, I have no real control over how it's going to turn out anyway. So that's made me, you know, I try to, it's, it's forced me to kind of be more present, you know, um, more aware of just, you know, the ordinary moments of life, because that's where we do our living, right? It's, you know, we don't all have you know, fireworks going off all the time. <laughs> Every day is a holiday, but there's beauty. There's beauty and, and you know, wonder and joy, even, even in like my morning cup of coffee right here. So, um, and I, I try to, you know, keep that sense of presence and not be overwhelmed anymore by the uncertainty of the unknown. Um, so I've tried to get to be a little bit more. Well, we can see you are doing wonderful. Talking about, you know, the book. So in addition to kind of weaving my two experiences as a kid, as a teen, and then as adults, you know, those are sort of the, the first two sections of the book are about, you know, getting diagnosed and then being treated. And then the third section of the book is about sort of little pieces of, you know, we'll call it advice, but ex what I experienced and, you know, so that practical stuff for people. So, and it runs the gamut from, you know, you know, what to wear when you lose your hair, to, you know, from wigs to scarves or, you know, for me, it was a baseball summer, um, to how do you deal with people who want to give you advice? Um, you know, how do you deal with people's, you know, awkward, like not sure what to say to you kind of, you know, situations. Um, so things that kind of worked for me. So there's some practical kind of, I call it the practical reality is sprinkled through the book as well, um, in addition to, to my story. Um, so, um, So that's, that's kind of the, the three components of, of the book. So it's not just a memoir, it's some 
there's some practical stuff in there as well. I'm sure that book has inspired many people. And of course, I have read some of the things in it uh, because it is not available in India, but definitely have been seeing a lot many reviews. And uh, like, I have been knowing this, like the recent book which is launched, Heroics, this title is very like bold and I really liked it. So what is your contribution in that book? Sure, sure, here, I will show it to you. Um, I mean, I know you can get these books on Amazon US, so I don't know if, I don't know how you get them in India. So I could ask my publisher though, find out. Um, but here's Heroic, so if you can see it. Um, it's called Women's Lived Experience During the Coronavirus Pandemic. And um, it was published in March by Pact Press. Um, and you can buy it directly on their website, Pact Press, and here in the States on all of the, you know, big, you know, on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, on Book Depository, on, you know, all, all of the places. Um, so, Heroics um, was, is an anthology. It's a collection of 52 essays written by women across the United States about their experiences during the pandemic. And the experiences range from, you know, motherhood to um, being a frontline healthcare worker to losing, you know, a loved one to COVID to, um, having a baby during COVID. I mean, it just runs the gamut. And the thing that's really great about this anthology is that these essays were written last spring. So the call for submissions went out, I wanna say in April of 2020, and the deadline was mid-May. So everyone was writing these essays, you know, right at the peak of the pandemic here in the United States. So the experiences kind of like when I, I wrote my original list were very raw, you know, they're very, very present um, in the moment that it was all happening, which is what I think makes this, this collection um, so interesting. And I think it, it'll kind of remain interesting because it's gonna be a marker for, you know, or placeholder for what it was really like in those early months when none of us knew what we were dealing with, right? Um, so what I contributed to the, to the collection is an essay called not, not back to, but forward. And it's an essay about how my experiences with cancer helped me deal with the uncertainty of COVID because I already knew from having gone through cancer twice that uncertainty is, is kind of your natural state of being. And it, you know, we all want to control things as humans, but the reality is, is that 98% of the time can't control. <laughs> so, um, and in those early days of the pandemic, I kept hearing people say, well, when we get back to normal, when we get back to normal, when this is all over, when we get back to normal. And it reminded me of being in cancer, in, in, in treatment, after I got out of treatment, you know, people would say that to me all the time, are you glad treatment's over? You're gonna get back to normal. And I knew I wasn't going back to normal. My life had changed, irrevocably it changed. You know, everything about my life had changed. You know, my life had changed emotionally, mentally, physically, sexually, all changed. So 
the idea that we we're going to go back to what we were pre-COVID was sort of the backbone of, of the essay. And, and, you know, the essay talks about, you know, learning to live with uncertainty. Um, it talks about, to me, one of the most striking things that the pandemic really brought home here in the States, and I think definitely is brought home globally because we can see, the, see this throughout the world now, um, is the vast disparity you know, in, in healthcare resources, you know, and you know, I can speak just here from my own experience, you know, there's, there was a huge difference between, you know, mortality and survivability, you know, between more affluent, you know, hospitals and hospitals that, you know, um, were located in urban areas where, you know, people were below or income level, um, different communities, you know, certainly the pandemic hit communities of color, far worse, um, particularly in the, the metro, the New York metro area. So New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, um, here in the Northeast. Um, so that to me was one of the things that, you know, we're not gonna go, we can't go back to that. We have to find a, find a way forward and do it better, you know. Um, so that I think is, that to me was sort of the call from COVID, like how can we make, how can we go forward as a country and as a, you know, as a global community and, and make the world safer and make the resources more widely available and, you know, be more environmentally friendly and all that and, and be fair, fair to, you know, the workers who are, you know, in the front lines of all this. Um, so that, that, was the, that was the essay that I contributed. Sure, it sounds very interesting. Um, I know the book will be very interesting with the title it itself says heroics. So what message or advice would you like to give to everyone today? Um, you know, one thing I think is, is well, like let's start about let's talk first about prevention all right so since your podcast uh, is focused on health and wellness so particularly for young women you know do your monthly breast self-examinations every month just do them on the first day of the month and you know know your body you know so that if something doesn't look right or something doesn't feel right don't ignore it go have it looked at you know it's, it's really important to have agency, you know, about your, about your health and your body. Um, you know, and it, it's, it, so, so that, that to me is really important. Um, if you're have a family history of any kind of cancer, but breast cancer in particular, you know, talk to your healthcare providers, your doctors or your nurses, you know, about doing early screening, start your mammograms early so that, you know, you don't, you know, get a diagnosis that, that's, you know, that, that's staged much later than it would have been if it had been caught earlier. So, you know, early detection, early screening is just, it's so, so important. Um, you know, I go back to like, 
the words that my oncologist, my teenage oncologist said to me, you know, and, and it, they were, they just rang true, you know, all the way through. And um, so that's, that's certainly one thing. So early, you know, screening, self-exams, um, try to get exercise every day or, if, you know, multiple times a week, if you can, you know, get out, outside, fresh air, all that good stuff. You know, I sound like my doctor, but this is my, my, my oncologist, whose name is um, Rashid Abbasi. He um, has, I've, I've done Zooms with him um, for uh, uh, medical groups in um, Pakistan and Southeast Asia as well. And he always says this stuff. So this is, this is me parroting my, my, my oncologist. And, um, you know, try to eat as healthily as possible, you know? So all of these things, you know, I'm sure there are things that your parents have told you. I'm sure you've heard this from other people, but you know, you know yourself the best, right? You know your body the best. And if something is off, you know, if something isn't right, then you need to respect that and try to figure out what it is. Now, it doesn't mean it's cancer, but you know, if you're at least attuned, then, you know, you're giving yourself, you know, the ability to potentially, you know, discover something sooner rather than later. And I, that's just so important for long-term survivability, um, especially since, you know, at least here in the States, younger and younger women are getting diagnosed. You know, it's not uncommon for women to get diagnosed now in their late twenties, early thirties. Um, so it's not, you know, people always think of cancer as something that affects older women or older men. And it really doesn't, it just kind of cuts across the board at this point. Um, so that's, that's kind of one thing on prevention. And, you know, the other thing is just, you know, if you're a caretaker, you know, no one takes care of the caretakers. I said this earlier, right? So, you know, be kind to the caretakers. Caretakers need to like fill their own cups as well. You know, if, if they're dealing with, you know, illness in the household or, you know, they, they can't just be doing all the caring. They have to, they have to take care of themselves too. So those are kind of my two big, big pieces of advice. And, and then the, the third piece of advice is people ask me all the time, well, if someone has cancer, like, what do I do? I don't know what to say. And what I, I like to remind people is that the person, you know, you don't know what to say, then just say, you don't know what to say and listen, because maybe they just want to talk you know, and, and listen to what they have to say. And if they're not comfortable sharing information, then, then respect that boundary, you know? Um, but the thing to remember is that the person who has the diagnosis is the same person you've always known, right? And you've cared about, whether it's a friend, a loved one, a coworker, you, you know these people, they haven't changed. Their essential self hasn't changed because they got this diagnosis. So um, it's important to remember that and, you know, not necessarily treat them like they're, they're broken or they're contagious or um, they're, they're, they're the same person. They're just a person who has a really crappy disease that they have to deal with. Um, and then if you want, you know, to help, then, you know, make an offer of concrete help and then do it. So whether it's, you know, making them a meal or giving a caretaker, you know, 
an hour off by themselves or helping out with, you know, shoveling kids around or helping out in the home, whatever, you know, no, you don't have to do, what I found was like the smallest gestures, you know, could have been a card or a note or somebody, you know, left, you know, a, a plant or, you know, flowers or showed up at my front door with a pot of spaghetti, you know, and just handed it to me and went away. You know, these like small things help people. You know, you don't have to necessarily do huge grand gestures, but like the small things that show you care um, are the most important, I think. And I, and I saved every single card, every single letter, every single note that I, I got. You know, I have a basket of them and I, I'll keep them for the rest of my life, so. It's really important. Communication is the key, of course. Um, having people around and talking to them actually is your mental health also. So thank you for sharing your advice and thank you for joining me in the podcast. You are really an inspiring person. And I'm sure your story will help others too. Thank you so much.